Amen. Do you, Christian, keep your promises? Do you keep your promises? Promises secure our future. Promises say to the world, I can be trusted. Break those promises and you break trust and you destroy your future. Break your promises little by little and you are left with nothing but empty words of disappointment and broken relationships. Actions speak louder than words. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised to give Israel a throne forever. He promised Israel a disciplined king, a faithful king whose obedience would secure the kingdom of God, a good and righteous king whose goodness and righteousness would bring peace, comfort to his people. And today in 2 Samuel 9, we get to see this king. We get to see the promised, the promise-keeping king. That's the title of my sermon this morning, The Promise-Keeping King. David was a promise-keeping king. Actions speak louder than words, and 2 Samuel 9 is here to prove it. 2 Samuel 9 begins with a pursuit. Chapter 9, verse 1, and David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul. He goes seeking. David is, David's first act, his first act in his newly minted kingdom, the first thing he does after God secures the kingdom, the first thing David does is he seeks. He seeks to keep his promise. He searches to be faithful to his word. And he longed to show kindness. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? Kindness for Jonathan's sake. The word kindness is a great, is a, it's a good translation. It's a fair translation. But there is more to this word that first, than first meets the eye. The word kindness is the Hebrew word hesed. It's the Hebrew word hesed. And the word hesed, this Hebrew word, is the theme of the story. Hesed is the theme of the text. It's used throughout the text over and over again. And hesed, or chesed, <laughs> chesed is always the result of a close relationship whereby two or more peoples agree together to show faithfulness to one another. Chesed is always followed by some kind of ceremony or oath-taking whereby two or more parties agree to show steadfast love to one another. We know that God hesed Abraham. God has hesed David. And when God hesed's, hesed's, we see his faithfulness, we see his goodness, his grace. And that's the kind of love, the kind of chesed that David wants to show in our text. We see in verse 3, he says, and the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the chesed of God or the kindness of God? 
David wanted to show the kindness of God. And dear Christian, no mere man can. No mere man can show and share the kindness of God. You see, friends, God's love is forever faithful. God's love is infinite. God's love is all-powerful. God's love is too great to overcome. God's love surpasses knowledge. God's love casts out fear. And David wanted at least to show a mere shadow of that love. And that is your calling, Christian, to live in light of God's love, to show as able the kindness of God's love to one another. That is, Christian, we need to love like the cross. We are called to love like the cross. We are called to give sacrificially. We are called to give service. We are called by the cross to serve and sacrifice. And service and sacrifice, service and sacrifice will heal any broken relationship. Service and sacrifice will heal anything because that's what the cross did. The cross healed. Just like the cross, we are called, Hesed, called to forsake self. We are called to forsake ourselves. We are called to bless one another just like the cross did. Hesed bears with one another. Hesed forgives one another their sins just like the cross did. Hesed is weeping with those who weep. Hesed is giving to those who have need. And Hesed is impossible. Hesed is impossible for us. But with Christ, all things are possible, even the best things, even the greatest things like love. And by God's grace, we can love, God helping us. We love because he first loved us. And so in this text, David wanted to be faithful. He wanted to keep his covenant. Now turn with me over to 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, 1 Samuel 20 verses 14, 1 Samuel 20, 14, Here, David covenant, strikes a covenant. 1 Samuel 20, 14, Jonathan says, If I'm still alive, he's talking to David, If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love, Hesed. Show me the kindness of the Lord. There's that phrase, show me the kindness of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love, your Hesed, from my house forever. For when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. In this text, two parties agreed by a ceremonial oath to love forever. They agreed to share and show hesed. Jonathan made a covenant with David. David also swore via oath 
to not eradicate Saul's family once he took the throne. Look over to 1 Samuel 24. 1 Samuel 24, verse 20. And Saul said, Jonathan's father, and now behold, he's speaking to David, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established by your hand, in your hand. And Saul says to David, swear to me, therefore by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. Verse 22, and David swore this to Saul. Promises were made in 1 Samuel, and now in 2 Samuel, promises must be kept. Promises were made, promises must be kept. David would serve the covenant. He would show steadfast love to Jonathan's house. He would preserve Saul's lineage because he's the promise-keeping king. He's the promise-keeping king, so he searched. He went to search in his new kingdom, the kingdom just established. He went to search. He pursued his oath. We must pursue our oaths. We must pursue to love, just like David here. David denies self. We must deny self, take up our cross to love, because that's what the cross did. The cross pursues us. The cross has pursued you, dear Christian. If you believe, that's because Christ pursued you. And he never stopped. And Christ will never stop. He will not, never stop caring for you. He will never stop giving to you. He will give you all that you need for body and soul in life and in death because he is a faithful servant, a faithful savior. Now, our text this morning, 2 Samuel 9, is a very covenantal text, which is interesting given the fact that we just left two of the greatest covenantal texts of all the Bible. 2 Samuel 7 and 8, two of the greatest covenantal texts of all the Bible. We've just witnessed, in the last two weeks, we just witnessed the inauguration of the Davidic kingdom. We've seen the ratification of the Davidic kingdom, the Davidic covenant, rather. And the Davidic covenant is one of the greatest covenants in the Bible. Matter of fact, the rest of the Bible is laid upon this covenant. The rest of the Bible sits on top of 2 Samuel 7 and 8. It's built on these covenants, the rest of the Bible. Now, 2 Samuel 9, the covenant that we see here, not so grand. <laughs> it's not so great, but important. It is important. It is important for it serves the former. To understand this text, to understand 2 Samuel 9, you need to know the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenant. You need to know that the Bible is law and gospel. The Bible's law and gospel. Moses is law. Moses is do this and live. Work, earn, do this, live. Law. Abraham gospel, believe, and live. The Bible is law and gospel. And the life of the Abrahamic covenant is the fulfillment of the Mosaic covenant. You see, friends, the gospel is grace. The gospel is grace to you who believe, but the gospel was work for Christ. The gospel is life for you who believe, but the gospel was death for Christ. Christ had to live a perfect, sinless life, died on the cross to earn 
eternal life, the eternal life of the Abrahamic covenant. You see, Christ was obedient to the point of death that he might establish the, the, the kingdom of God. And by that kingdom, the gospel has brought everlasting peace. By the righteousness of Christ, we have peace as if we have never sinned, as if we have been perfectly obedient, as Christ is obedient for me. And we receive that gift of God by faith alone. You see, Christ is the true promise-keeping king. Christ has fulfilled this text. Christ has fulfilled the Davidic covenant. He's the true promise-keeping king. And that's the theology behind our text. But now we got to look at the actual uh, text itself. Verse 2, we read, Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son, a son of Jonathan. But then the narrator reminds us, because we've heard the story already, we know the story, his mom, his servant dropped him, and the narrator reminds us he's crippled in his feet. There is a son, he's crippled. Crippled in context means helpless. Crippled in context means helpless. Crippled in the ancient Near Eastern context means Worthless, helpless, worthless. But David searched for him, verse 4. The king said to him, where is he? Kind of sounds condemning a little bit. Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machar, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. Now you got to know your geography a little bit. Set the context here. Lodabar, I had to look it up myself. But Lodabar is a town on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. It's a coastal town on the sea of that great lake in Galilee, which if you know, the, if you could picture Israel in your head, you know it's at the top. It's in the north. He's in the north. Jerusalem is west of the Dead Sea, southwestern, southwest central Jerusalem. The idea is uh, Mephibosheth is out of sight, trying to be out of mind, really in hiding. And why was he hiding? Because in the ancient Near East, you didn't want to be the sole survivor to the foreign or the former regime. You didn't want to be a male survivor of a former regime. It didn't really bode well for you in the ancient world. For example, in 1 Kings 15, when Basha became king of Israel, he immediately slaughtered the house of Nadab, the former king. And when Jehu became king, he killed all of Ahab's descendants. And this was policy. It was the law of the land. It solidified the usurper's throne from a potential threat. It's good politics. Good politics. Everyone knew it. Everyone practiced it. And the new king in the new regime is now calling for the sole survivor of the former regime's son, the heir to Saul's throne. And he found him. And he called him. And I can just imagine Mephibosheth, that trip from the north to the south, would have been a trip of fear and loathing. 
but he came. Verse 6, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David. I'm sure it was a frightful trip. And then we see kind of a liturgical exchange. David spoke first, the king spoke, and then Mephibosheth answers. But the king spoke, he said, he said merely a word to Mephibosheth. He said, Mephibosheth. Before the great king, the new king, stands the usurper's son, a crippled, worthless, and he hears these condemning words, Mephibosheth. Those words must have sounded to Mephibosheth like a death sentence, to hear the king just call his name. And Mephibosheth answered formally. He answered fearfully. He said, verse 6, with trembling words, Behold, I am your servant. He was saying to the king, I'm nothing. I'm helpless. I'm simply your servant. I'm not seeking your kingdom. I'm not seeking the throne. I submit to your reign. And that had to be the most terrifying answer, the most frightful moment of Mephibosheth's life ever. The king on his throne calls out to his name, Mephibosheth. And in royal grandeur, the king responded with death. Verse 7, and he said to him, do not fear. Oh, wait a minute. (laughs) That's not the policy. That's not the law of the land. Do not fear. That's something else. That's grace. The king extended mercy. Do not fear. And those are the exact first words that God gave to David, the first words God spoke to David when he ratified, or inaugurated rather, the covenant of grace. The first words of the covenant of grace are, do not fear. And David has just, the son of Abraham has just spoken to Mephibosheth, do not fear. David would be Mephibosheth's deliverer. And David delivered, verse 7, and David said to him, do not fear. Why? For I will show you, I will show you kindness. I will show you hesed. You see, David has been searching for Mephibosheth. David has called Mephibosheth. And David has delivered him. And David will now give him protection because David is bound by an oath. David was bound by an oath to serve Mephibosheth, this cripple, this worthless servant. He's the promise-keeping king. He was bound by oath. And there is law here for us. Yes, there is. Christians must be bound by oaths. You are bound by an oath, Christian, especially if you're a member of this church. When you became a member of this church, you made an oath to the Lord. You made a sacred vow You made a sacred vow to love this church, to serve this church, to obey the leaders in this church. And if you are parents, when you baptize those little ones, you made a sacred vow in in baptism to Christian them, 
You made a vow, a sacred vow to Christian your children. And if you are a husband and wife, you made a sacred vow to serve one another sacrificially till death do you part. And if you are a church officer in this church, you have made a vow before the Lord to protect the peace and purity of this church. Sacred vows are so important. That's why we practice biblical church government. We practice biblical church government that we might make these sacred vows, and these sacred vows are a challenge to the Reformed faith. The sacred vow is a challenge to the Reformed faith because the world outside these doors eschews vows. The world hates vows or the world doesn't care about vows They're simply insignificant to the world, and Christians, unfortunately, are very worldly. And we see that when Christians easily forsake vows, leave their church for another. We see it when marriages are dissolved so easily. And it's been, I heard this week, I actually heard this week in a podcast, I heard this week in a podcast that Christian cohabitation is a thing. It's a major thing in our world today. Christian cohabitation, sex outside of marriage, it is a devilish sin. Why? Because Christians need vows. Now I can hear it as I say it, but pastor, why do I have to have a piece of paper to show my love? Because we bear the image of God. And God is a promise-making God. So we must make and keep promises. And vows are more than formality. Vows are more than a piece of paper. They are covenant bonds with the Lord. So Christian vows happen in a formal ceremony. We do it in worship. And the public vow is the security that you will love unconditionally and serve faithfully as long as promised in the vow. And the ceremony binds the vow to the Lord. And the bond is the security. And it protects the future. It seals the relationship. And it secures the future. As one commentary put it, I quote, what the world does not see is that love that truly loves is willing to bind itself. Love that truly loves is willing to bind itself, is willing to promise, willingly and gladly obligates itself so that the other may stand securely in that love. If you want to truly love Christ and his church, if you want to love your spouse, if you want to love your children, you must make public sacred vows to do so. Then there is peace, then there is security, and then there is the church and the people of God and God himself there to hold you accountable. Verse 7. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness. Why? Because I made a vow. For the sake of your father, Jonathan. 
David promised mercy and more. He was searching, calling, rewarding, and protecting because he made a covenant. And not only was he a searching, rewarding, protecting, he was a placing king. And he says, verse 7, and you shall eat at my table. He places Mephibosheth in the highest place possible. He places Mephibosheth at the king's right hand, at the king's table, as one of the king's family. He was secure. David would be his shield. David would be his reward. Because David made a vow. And he's the promise-keeping king. Verse 8. And he paid homage, Mephibosheth paid homage, and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog search his eye? The verb paid homage means to bow down. And it carries the overtones of worship. Not that Mephibosheth was worshiping David, but the response is similar to to worship. He gave David all he had. That is, he gave David gratitude. And he was at awe. And you can see his awe in his question, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Nothing lower in Israel than a dead dog. He confessed to be nothing but a dead dog. And why did David bless a dead dog? Because he made a promise. And finally, the rest of the text, David ordered that his vow be true. In verses 9 through 12, he heaps all the goodness of his word onto Mephibosheth. He restored to him his inheritance. He gave him a place at his table. He gave him everything. He fulfilled his word, verse 13. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. He put him in that high place. And then the narrator ends the story very interestingly. He actually ends the story repeating something we already know. It's not necessary. But he ends the text in a very interesting way. He says, and he was lame in both his feet. It's the narrator's way of reminding us that he was a crippled. It's the narrator's way of reminding us that he was worthless. He was a worthless, dead dog. Matter of fact, he was the enemy. It's the narrator's way of reminding us that Mephibosheth was saved not because of anything in Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth didn't deserve any of this, but he received it all because of a promise. It's the narrator's way of reminding us that Mephibosheth was saved by the covenant. He was saved by the covenant. And if you are welcome to the Lord's table this morning like Mephibosheth, when you come to this table, you should stand at all and say before the Lord, I do not deserve this. Why would you give me all of this? Why would you give this all to me, a dead dog? You should stand equally amazed at God's grace as Mephibosheth in this text because we are the Lord's Mephibosheths. We are worthless, dead dogs. We were the enemy of God. Don't forget that either. 
Romans 5.10 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You see, the cross even loves and serves. And we are called to love and serve even our enemy. So don't come to me and say, yeah, but that person's my enemy. I'll say, great. That's who you're called to serve and give and sacrifice. And we were enemies and Christ searched for you. When you were an enemy, he found you by his grace. He saved you by his blood and he spoke peace to you and he speaks peace to you this day. He speaks peace to the church. In Luke 12, 32, Jesus says, fear not, little sheep. Fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not, little flock, for it is the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And there would be a lot of fear, dear Christian, if you had to secure the kingdom for yourself, would there not be a lot of fear if it was based on you at some point in your life to gain the kingdom in some way, in some form or fashion, even if simply your faith was a final means to receive that kingdom and you know your faith is weak, you know you're a dead dog, your faith is shallow, your faith is fickle, and you can lose grasp of that kingdom by your faith at any moment. In fact, you probably already have. But if God graciously gives you the kingdom, if he searched for dead dogs, if he brings them to life by his grace and he gives them the kingdom and they receive it as a gift of God, that you can lose it never. And if God promises you that he will lose none, that he will hold all his people, if Christ is true and he says, I sanctify them in truth, I give them eternal life. I will never leave or forsake. If Christ is true when he says, I will raise them up on the last day, I have prepared for them a mansion with many rooms. I will raise them up on the last day. I will give them an inheritance, my inheritance. Then there is nothing to fear because that is what we call hesed. And hesed was delivered on the cross, completely delivered on the cross. And we are saved by the covenant. For God gave it to Abraham by promise, and promises were kept. And Jesus has made all these vows to you, and he's made all these vows to each and every one of you publicly. He made these vows publicly to you at your baptism. You see, friends, baptism is not your vow to the Lord. I hear that a lot in evangelical culture. It's one of the things the Baptist tradition is given to our evangelical culture. And I hear it all the time. What's baptism? Well, it's my vow to Lord. No. No. <laughs> baptism is God's vow to you. It is God's vow to wash away all your sins, to claim you as his own, and to give you the kingdom of God. You are making no vow to God. He is making the vow to you. And he will keep his promises. And now we celebrate that vow today in the ceremony of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a promise of eternal fellowship. And the Lord's Supper is not just a bare memorial. The Lord's Supper is not just words. The Lord's Supper is real. The true body and the true blood of Christ. The, cru the true and real crucified body and shed blood of, of the Lord because 
actions speak louder than words. And so your future is secure. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.